And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Friday, April 22nd. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law on this episode. We explore some of my wildest ideas for changing baseball. I am worried, Keith. I am very worried seeing the lack of hits early on this season. I discussed this a little bit with Eno and Britt on the 3-0 show yesterday. If you look at the baseball reference year-over-year numbers, you can see trends in every possible stat, right? You could see homers, you could see steals, you could see average OBP slugging, whatever you want. And I'd sorted by hits and we are at 7.55 hits per team game. It's the lowest in baseball history. We're talking about 150 years and we've never seen fewer hits per game than we are seeing right now in 2022. And I think obviously as the weather heats up, that can change. Things change over the course of the season. Maybe some of the the quality of the pitching goes down so hitters can make up some ground, but something's got to give. I know we've been looking at banning the shift in the minor leagues. I don't think that's going to do it. I think we need to think more drastically, right? They lowered the mound after the 1968 season when offense tanked in a big way. I think we have to consider the possibility that hitters should walk on ball three. This is my radical proposal to alter professional baseball forever. Have I completely lost the plot? Yes, yes, you absolutely have lost the plot because we're going to see like 15 walks per game. Are we? I think you'll just have hitters not swing. Mm, You think that'll be the first strategy? Yeah, yeah, which is terrifying to me. I don't definitely do not want to see that. I I agree with you that we need to, I'm going to steal a line from Joe Sheen, right? We're going to have to rein pitchers in. Like this is... The reason we're seeing this in baseball is because pitchers are better than ever, throwing harder than ever, able to manipulate the ball by using data to optimize what they're doing better than ever. So we need to find some way to rebalance. I agree with that. Um, I would rather see us do something with the strike zone Mm. than shift to walking guys sooner. That, like, for example, I mean, we're going to get the automated strike zone at some point, obviously. And that is, I think we've seen from the Arizona Fall League and from the Florida State League last year, that's a smaller strike zone than the one that's called. I do think we'll have to probably, in Major League Baseball, we'll probably have to calibrate it, tweak it a little bit to uh, get the desired outcome. But I would rather see something like that. The one that I've brought up a bunch is make sure that the bottom of the strike zone is just above the knee. It has moved around in recent years. It had gotten to the point where I think it was almost a full inch below the knee, and you can't, just nobody's hitting that. Mm-hmm. Nope. That's if you're going to hit that, you're probably going to hit it right into the ground. Um, 
I'm open to other ideas, certainly, just not yours. <laughs> My hope was that it wouldn't encourage hitters to just stand there with the bat on their shoulder and try to draw the walk, but it would it would force these pitchers who were throwing harder and throwing with more spin and more movement than ever before to actually throw in the zone. Give hitters a chance. Give hitters just a prayer of actually putting the ball in play more often, and that would speed up action a little bit and reduce the current long paths we get to a walk, right? I think that's it's a little bit of a pace of play thing, but it's really more of a forcing action. We want to see action. We want to see the hitter make contact. We want to see someone have to try and make a play, or ideally, we want to see a ball land between fielders. We want to see guys run, because that's actually one of the most yes. fun parts of this game. Yeah, well, that's the, I would say that's one of the biggest things, right? We want to see guys running. But there, we've got two things working against that, right? Fewer balls put into play and more hitters uh, giving up some contact to improve their chances of putting the ball over the fence. And neither one of those things produces real action on the field. And they may be optimal strategies to win a baseball game, but they are not necessarily optimal strategies for creating a product that the fans will enjoy. I mean, those two things are not always compatible. Yes, the team that wins everything, team that wins the World Series, the fans tend to like that. They will probably buy more tickets, show up more, etc. But Major League Baseball's incentive is to build the best product across the entire sport. I don't think they're particularly good at doing that. But you know, for the purposes of this sort of more academic discussion, I would say, yeah, they need to find a way to... Um, find a way to put the ball, have more balls put into play, more fielding, more base running, fewer strikeouts. And if that means fewer home runs, which we are seeing this year, because multiple people suspect major league baseball has done something to the ball itself. Um, then yeah, so much the better. Yeah. We get the lowest home run rate uh, that we've seen since 2014. So we've seen a significant drop. Uh, 0.90 homers per team game so far this season. We've been well over yeah. one per game per team for the last seven years. So some of that's the ball. I think we could probably look at the shortened spring training and say hitters are still, some hitters are still a little bit behind. That's a possibility. That happens a little bit early in the year. And the weather is always a factor this time of year as well. But if you're thinking offense is down, well, yeah, home runs are down. The league's hitting 230 with a 309 OBP and a 369 slugging percentage. It's not great. We're turning nope. we're turning the average hitter into a below average middle infielder from the 70s with the bat. That's not what we want. No, that is definitely not what we want. Um, it is early. I, I think it may be less spring training, too, than it's April. It's also like really freaking cold mm -hmm. out there. So that's also like I was out at a Blue Rocks game the other night. By the time I left in the ninth inning, it was 40 degrees. Um that doesn't help home run rates either. No, it doesn't. We'll see more as the weather warms up. But uh, lots to dig into here. And I, I'm starting to think about this uh, in a evaluation perspective, from a team perspective. When you have what I refer to as a limited currency of playing time at the big league level, and you're a rebuilding team, think A's. I know they're off to a good start. Think Orioles, Pirates, Diamondbacks. What's guiding your decision on a micro level, like well, how do you decide when you're going to shift players on and off the roster, in and out of the lineup, out of the rotation, into the bullpen? How do you decide on these types of things? I think of all those teams, the one that's really caught my attention early on this season is the Orioles, actually. They're not using their pitchers in completely conventional ways, but there are some interesting pitching models out there that point to them doing some things right. And that kind of 
gets back to their their connections as an organization to the Astros. You know, Mike Elias and Sigma Dahl have connections to Houston because that's where they started. And I think maybe it's some of that happening. But I also wonder, as the Orioles try and, and shift some of these guys around, like Tyler Wells is a guy who's kind of popping right now. Michael Bauman uh, looks good in some of these models. Is it going to work when they are used like more conventional pitchers or is that not even really the plan? Does it not even matter because they've got something else entirely that they've got in the works that they're they're trying to do to make these guys as effective as they can possibly be given their respective limitations? Haven't they also played the A's a bunch? That helps. Yeah. Yeah, that helps. Right. In terms of run prevention, it helps to play a team that is just not actively trying to win this year. Um it is actually interesting because if you'd asked me what I thought the Orioles would be like this year, we're 12 games in, right? Let's not draw any conclusions off of this. But at the same time, I would have said they might score a bunch of runs this year. I mean, I don't think that's that bad of an offensive team, but I think, but actually so far their season has been quite the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but when you're looking at players this early, mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. How do you decide when to change course? Like, I, I know it's it's a totally different question if we're talking about a top prospect. When or how? Both, really. The when part, I don't think we're there yet. But what are you looking at? What are you looking at if you're if you're starting to have concerns about a player that you're giving an opportunity to for the first time? So, I mean, when? Yeah, we're not even close, right? I generally don't even like looking at individual statistics until about mm, Memorial Day, and even then, we're still very much in small sample territory. Um, but by that point, you can start to see, hey, maybe something's wrong, right? We could still be looking at noise, but by that point, if there's a little signal, it should probably start to show through um, in the majority of cases. For how, though, you know, for me, it is – we have two ways to go about this now, right? The traditional way is with scouting, with old-fashioned scouting, where does the player look different? Is the body different? Is the swing different? Is the delivery different? Uh, is his velocity different? The quality of the stuff different? Is he? Uh, does he seem to be making better or worse quality contact, more or less contact overall? There are lots of those variables that we should be looking for. And to me, it's a big value of scouts too, is that they'll go out and see a lot of those things. Um, we also have data now that can help us do many of these things that can help us see, hey, this guy's suddenly hitting the ball a lot harder this year. Oh, this, this guy's, you know, last year, Trevor Rogers shows up and the slider has completely different characteristics than any slider has had any that is any of his breaking balls, sorry, have had previously. So to me, that's, uh, we have both of those paths. And I, I think the best front offices are using both. I think there are some front offices that are probably just using the latter. Um, I don't know if there are many front offices that are only using the former at this point. Uh, I think the best ones are using both. And I, you know, a really well-run organization, you know, we talk a lot about the Dodgers and the Rays as clubs that do this. It, one of those groups identifies something and says, hey, I think Joey Bag of Donuts is different this year. I see X. And then the other department follows up and says, yes, we can confirm that with data or visual evidence. Right. So you might see something. Uh, I was thinking about uh, plate discipline metrics like uh, O swing percentage, how often a hitter is swinging at pitches outside the zone. And I was looking at that leaderboard for rookies so far, just seeing like, which rookies might be chasing pitches they shouldn't swing at. And it's not surprising to see 
C.J. Abrams and Bobby Witt Jr. somewhat high on that list. They're third and fourth, respectively, among rookies so far. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything in the long, long run, but it helps you begin to diagnose what might be going wrong for them early. And step two is looking at what happens when they swing at pitches outside the zone. Some guys actually make contact on those pitches because they have good coverage, right? They've, they've mm-hmm. got the ability. They've got a good hit tool. They're still able to hit pitches that are outside the zone, and both of those players have that. So maybe it's just a, a slight tweak. Maybe it's something that it's adjusting and trying not to force something to happen. I think there's a lot of pressure for players debuting to come up and do something right away to really secure that playing time. And I think it's reflected sometimes in just how aggressively they're swinging at pitches that are not in the zone. Yes, I think that's fair. Even data like that, I think people like to look at, and this is more a question of outside the game, but people often like to look at that data in fairly small samples. And particularly like for the players you're talking about, I would guess that let's say these guys spend the entire year in the majors, the data for Abrams and Witt should look a lot different in August mm-hmm. than it has in April. I certainly hope so in that case. And I think the teams are looking at that and saying, yeah, that's right. This is, as you said, these guys, especially in Abrams' case, he just hasn't played that much. Right. And here he's in the big leagues. That'd be true of Jeremy Pena. He's a little older. But yeah, would like I would expect those guys to see, should see significant improvements as they make adjustments over the course of the season. Yeah, you'd look at a you know a rolling chart of something like this, and you'd see that improvement sort of month over month, or from first half to second half. Right, you map a trend line. Right, you should expect to see that. Expect to see those. Um, expect to see the trend be positive for players like that, especially talented players who've had a lot of success before, um, but who uh, who are especially like in the case of Abrams, who basically jumped to the majors after what half a season in Double A, if that. I don't even know if he had a half a season. Yeah, a lot of missed time for him with injuries, so not surprising to see some early struggles, early growing pains. I think where it becomes really tricky is with guys like Dylan Carlson, uh, Jared Kelnick, who we saw come up last year, struggle, get sent down. We talked a lot about him on this pod. He's off to a sluggish start. We're talking about two weeks. I think if you get a month into the season and he looks like he does right now, then you've got some more difficult questions to answer. But I think you're still 15 or 20 games away from from making any sort of of hard line roster related decision with players like that who've already seen big league pitching before. And I, I think in the case of someone like Bobby Witt Jr., my first counter argument to anyone who'd want to send him down even a week or two from now, if he doesn't start to to unlock something soon, what does he have left to prove at AAA? And how does hitting AAA pitching fix your problems against big league pitching? Like, I just, I still don't think that's the right answer. I think that's an old development technique to take a player and send him back down a level, even when he's clearly figured that level out nine times out of 10 that seems like the wrong line of thinking to me so i'm really curious to see the patience level with the royals and some of the things they can do obviously there's other options on the dial right you can give guys a day off give them a couple days off work on the side a little bit you know you can make those kinds of tweaks and that can that can sometimes be enough to start fixing the problem i agree with you it is an old you called it a technique to me it's not even right it's just making it up like, we don't know what we're doing. I just send him down. That's not an answer. That's not a solution to anything at all. It is, we don't know what else to do. Or we're just so consumed with winning right now, we don't even have time to figure this out. We don't even have time to figure out how best to help you. And you do often, yeah, if they sent Bobby Witt Jr. down, that's not going to help him at all. I forgot who the player was the other day. Somebody, it was Luis Garcia, the one with the Nationals. Mm. Off to a really good start in AAA. And the question on Twitter was, why are they starting 
a couple of not very good players in the majors over him when he's off to this great start in AAA. Now, he's probably right in that Garcia should be in the majors more for developmental reasons. It, you end up with two problems, right? Garcia's probably not learning anything now playing in AAA when he's got a fair amount of major league experience. And so the pitching he's facing in AAA is just worse, right? He is now facing a lower level of competition than what he'd gotten to, what he'd gotten accustomed to in the majors. And so he said, you know, at this point, it's like, well, this is too easy. Mm-hmm. You got to dial, turn the level of difficulty up a little bit more. And so I think there's that factor. All, the stats also are become, become completely misleading. So now you look at Garcia. Well, he's mashing in AAA. He absolutely should be in the majors. He's not going to do that. In the majors. It's very unlikely that he would do that in the majors at this point. It may be better for the Nationals to maybe, sorry, maybe better for Garcia and for the Nationals to have him in the majors. However, you end up in this situation where the player's probably not learning anything in AAA and the stats aren't even that meaningful in terms of evaluating uh, his current performance or whether you should be making some changes to his projections. And with Luis Garcia, not surprisingly, the AAA power output is well above anything he's ever done at any other level before. He's got 15 combined homers now in 51 games between this season and last season at AAA. I mean, that's not that's not his game, right? That's not his profile. Oh my God. I never he was never a top 100 prospect for me. The main things he had going for him, play the middle infield, and he was very young for his levels. There's been no impact there. Unless something dramatic has changed in him this season, which I've, I have not heard anything on that. I've not heard anything about him at all from anyone this year. But he is not, um, he, there's, it's not, there's no impact. It is, he's not an impact hitter at all. I mean, I thought your hope was he would hit for kind of an empty batting average and play somewhere in the middle of the field. That's a big leaguer. That is not a top prospect, not an impact guy. And I don't, look at the AAA numbers and think that there's impact there just based on that tiny sample or that environment. The only thing that I see that looks noticeably different in the batted ball profile at AAA this year, and we're talking 14 games, he's hitting the ball on the ground less than he's ever hit the ball on the ground. He's down to a 45% ground ball rate. Usually he lives well above 50. Uh, In the big leagues, he's been above 55% during the brief times he's been with Mm -hmm. the Nationals. So, there's a chance that with a altered swing, maybe he's unlocking a little more power. That's about it. That's the only it's the only difference that I can spot right now in Garcia. But I think the point about who they're playing instead, what are they doing? Alcides Escobar is getting playing time. Yeah, that was the other guy. I was I couldn't even remember who it was at this point without going and looking it up. That plays second for the Nationals, right? You can see I've not been watching a lot of Nationals Major League Baseball so far this year. They are an easier team to avoid as you're hopping around looking for for the most interesting things to watch. Uh, they're not totally unwatchable, but they're no. bottom third of the league in terms of no, I'm at the teams point I'm looking now for. Where it's like I'm watching, you know, the Mariners for that lineup, or I'm watching. Let's see, I'm watching, uh, you know, Mackenzie Gore pitch or Hunter Green pitch. So there are plenty of other things um, to get my attention. Then the Nationals have one or two interesting young players. They have fewer than most of the other clubs that I would be watching on a night when I'm not actually actively at a ballpark. Yeah, I'll I'll watch them when the team they're playing is more interesting. Sure, they're not a hard avoid. There's only a handful of teams that I'm actually avoiding. Who would you actually avoid? Is there a team you would just be like, I am not watching that club no matter what this year? A's. Yeah, they're not great. <laughs> A's fans deserve so much better. I I feel terrible for them and and. Uh, we're, we're seeing John Fisher run out his own major league plot, I think, is, is basically what's happening right now in Oakland. Just an, an empty stadium, and that's 
what he wanted, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. He got what he wished for. Good for him, I suppose. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The uh, other stuff I wanted to get to is some some early season performances. I'm glad you brought up Mackenzie Gore. Just We talked about him, I think, three or four weeks ago, one of the last times you and I did this pod. Mackenzie Gore seems like he is back, and now we've got a couple of big league starts in, and you know, compared to what you saw years ago, is this really the Mackenzie Gore that we were promised a few years ago? Should, should Padres fans and prospect hounds be delighted by what we're getting early on this season from him? Yes, I think he's back. I absolutely do. We've got now a couple spring training outings where he looked really good. We have got a, uh, what, two major league starts now. He looked good in the first one, despite I thought he got squeezed a little bit by the umpire in the first one. But stuff looked really good, and he looked even better in the second one. And he's got multiple uh, he's got multiple weapons working for him. I think the command and control will get better, for sure. Um, but I think that... Uh, what we've seen from him so far is a pretty positive indicator. And that's why he was still in my, I think he was still in my top 50. He was definitely still well into my top 100 uh, this past off season. I refuse to give up on the guy. It's way too good stuff. Athleticism, uh, feel to pitch. He had all of the ingredients in a guy who just had some delivery issues last year. It happens. The line from third pick in the draft to the major leagues is not always a straight one. Looking at his, his pitch mix so far, he's thrown his four-seamer 68% of the time. That's heavy four-seam usage. Is it fair to say that that might be part of the strategy just to keep his mechanics consistent? And as we, we see more of Gore in the big leagues, he might get away from that fastball and, and work the curveball, the slider, and maybe the change a little bit more than he has early on? I've talked to Padres people about him a lot, obviously, over the last year plus. I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think that's necessarily part of it. It, it is... Just getting his delivery more consistent, especially in back. Um, if he can do that, then he's going to – I think he can throw multiple pitches for strikes. I, I don't think it was pitch specific. In fact, I feel very confident it wasn't pitch specific last year. It was very much delivery related. And his deliver. I can. I saw him last year. I saw a video of him last year. I saw actually saw him in person last year. And I think that he is – it's not that this is where his delivery – used to be it is that this is a delivery that he can absolutely repeat yeah maybe it's just a better version of of what he was before in that way more repeatable more fluid i think so and actually i thought the curveball looked pretty good the curveball was the one thing in fall league last year where it was like "Eh, it's not really quite i mean it used to be an absolute knockout pitch and it's not anymore and now i feel like it's uh 
it actually looked, I shouldn't say feel, it looked better in the two major league starts than what I remembered seeing from him in his first fall league outing last year. Yeah, still a lot to build on, I think, and, and obviously great momentum out of these first two starts for uh, Mackenzie Gore. Uh, speaking of, of players that people have waited on for a long time, they waited even longer for Jerks and Profar. Profar's fast start is interesting because I'm starting to wonder if there's something different in his swing. I mean, this is a guy that a decade ago was considered the best prospect in baseball by most people. Two years. I think everyone pretty much had him there. Yeah. Lost time to the shoulder injuries, and it's been really a long road to him possibly delivering on that potential. Maybe it's just the fast start. I mean, that's that's always the possibility. Just like a, a bad start through three or four series could be a slump. A hot streak could be the way you open your season. But I think it'd be a great story if this is the version of Jurickson Profar that we, we finally have. Or maybe we do get 25 homers this year. Maybe we do get more of a middle-of-the-order sort of run producer as opposed to the guy that is just average-ish and just kind of clinging to a semi-regular spot in that Padres lineup. Uh, he is hitting the ball a lot harder this year. That's I wonder if he's just, like, whatever was going on health-wise, I don't know. But he's hitting the ball a lot harder this year. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you from watching you know, TV, like, to tell if a guy's swing has substantially changed. It's pretty tough to tell on the MLB TV angles, but I can certainly look at the data as well as anybody else can. Hey, this guy's got the highest exit velocities of his career, and the imputed stats are a hell of a lot better. And he's also walking more. Probably doesn't hurt if he's getting himself into better positions. But it's not. It's interesting that his like his launch angle is about the same, his exit velocity, max exit velocity is about the same. But he's more making more consistent hard contact. You know, somebody tweeted this at me. One of my regular readers tweeted this at me the other day, and said, you know, maybe his shoulder finally feels better. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. Maybe his shoulder finally feels better. It's a, it's a stunner coming off the season he just had a year ago. I mean, 227, 329, 320. I thought it was the beginning of the end for Profar. And uh, nice to see it so far. It, it's also strange. You look at last year, ground ball rate, about the same as this year. It's exact same, actually, right now as we look at it on, on Thursday afternoon. Uh, doing plenty of damage, though, and... I'm here for it. I'm here to see what's next. Maybe maybe we be, get a season better than uh, the 2018 season that he gave us in Texas. That was the 20 homer, 10 steal, 254, 335, 458 year. Taking the over on, on 20 home runs for Profar? Based on the, you get the four in the bank already. I don't know. Ballpark. <laughs> what's he got? He's got four this year? He's got four in the bank. He's only got to get 16 more for you to push. Well, I kind of want to take the over. My brain says take the under. My heart says take the over. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm living with Profar right now, too. I I want to believe, but my right? brain's kind of grounding me back in reality. He's like, no, no, no. He's, he's disappointed you enough times. Don't fall for it. Yeah. I've got other players like that, too. I have a refusal to give up on Nick Senzel. It seems it's like borderline unhealthy. I still think it's going to work for him, and, and he's going to hit. Uh, publicly, I've sworn off Victor Robles, but... Behind the scenes, I still believe in Victor Robles. Like if, if you gave me a seat at the table and and said, "Hey, Derek, we got to get a center fielder for our team, and you know we can trade for Victor Robles," should we do it? I'd say yes, yes, we should trade for Victor Robles. Let's get him to stop bunting. Let's just do that. Robles does not hit the ball very hard at all, Mm-mm. and there have been whispers. I heard when he was still in the minors, there were whispers like this guy doesn't hit the ball very hard at all. And it's like well, you know he's like nineteen or twenty, right? That guys do get stronger. Some guys are hitting the ball extremely hard at that age. Brady House, now in the national system, elite exit velocities when he was in high school. But 
they don't all have to hit the ball extremely hard at that point. Guys, we do expect some physical projection from guys. Except in Robles' case, it hasn't gotten that much better. And at a certain point, do you say it's not happening? I'm willing to take the L on that, right? I had Robles ranked pretty high at one point. If it's never happening, it's never happening. It doesn't mean he has no value as a major league player, but it means he's not the superstar we, we hoped he was going to be. No, it means he's your fourth outfielder because he's a good defensive center fielder and you play him and hit him in the bottom of the lineup when your regular center fielder's hurt or when you're facing a lefty. Uh, but I, I do think the the same problems we saw for Profar for a few years are problems we do see in the underlying numbers with Victor Robles right now. I mean, the look at, just look at the barrels. Profar, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. four homers, it's four barrels this year. He only had eight all of last season. Robles does not barrel the ball consistently. He did in the year of the rabbit ball, relatively speaking, had 20 barrels that year. It was 4.8% was the barrel rate, still low. Average exit velocity doesn't like him. Again, a symptom of, of bunting. But I took the bunts away because I was convinced, like, the bunting is the, is the problem. No, it's, it, it. it's still yeah. low. Like, it still skews lower <laughs> than you'd like it to. So that was not the, the easy way out that I hoped it would be. Yeah, by the way, ag- average exit velocity has a huge problem, right? If for those, those little tappers you hit in front of the plate that are 20 miles an hour, right? That'll pull your average down pretty quickly you know that's why i i know everyone lists it you know, you go to baseball savant it's right there do i look at it of course i'm human you put a number in front of me of course i want to look at it but you gotta take a step back that's probably not as useful as i mean there are multiple other columns you could look at just on the same page that i think would impart more information like hard hit percentage right how often is he hitting the ball hard that's not always going to line up that's not a one-to-one lineup with the um, correlation with average exit velocity for that for that reason or i guess i can't believe they don't take bunts out but i guess they don't it seems like not useful i mean if someone hits a bunt at 101 miles an hour will you let me know if someone ever bunts a ball at 101 miles an hour i will change my tune completely about bunting yeah right they should bunt more often yeah i will go from staunch opponent to cautious supporter of bunting if that's how it it plays out but that's the that's the problem with robles that he does not hit the ball hard right if he did both of those things if he if he had weak contact problems but he also connected on you know clear mistake pitches right if that if that was reflected in a, a good hard hit rate there'd be a little more to go off of so i'm feeling a little more long-term wrong on robles than i have on a lot of other players nick senzel is my new player though where i'm just like nah it, it's gonna happen they they're giving him enough chances this year health permitting he is going to hit i think i'm out you're out you're giving up i think i'm out yeah it's i mean I believed at one point, I certainly believed when he was coming out of the draft, he's going backwards. He's gone like significantly backward. And this year, in a minuscule sample, he looks worse than ever. Something is not adding up there. There's a, I'm convinced there's a variable we don't know about, but hmm. something is not right at all. He hasn't, speaking of barrels, he hasn't barreled the ball up all, at all. This year, a single ball at all this season. Zero. Yeah. Zero. I'm not make, basing this conclusion on that, but coming out of last year too, it's like, that may just not be happening. I do think they've done some things wrong with him. I think screwing with his position multiple times since they drafted him did him absolutely no favors. I am loath to just keep using that as an excuse at this point. All right. You're out on Senzel. I am, yep. I'm holding, still believing, still still hoping uh, for the sake of at least Reds fans and maybe a few uh, fantasy teams where he's bouncing around in the bottom of my roster. The other player that I refuse to give up on and it's it's even worse when when I get validation uh, through the actions of, of an actual major league team. Uh, Isak Paredes. I was convinced he's going to come up and he's going to hit somewhere in the big leagues in 2022 and then to make matters worse, the Rays traded for him, 
which then makes it look like I'm just clinging on to the process that they're using or that I like him because of that. Like, no, no, no. Like, he's, he's actually probably more blocked now than he was in Detroit, but he's hitting again in the minors. And I, I don't know where he fits well defensively, Keith, but I think Paredes is a quality big league hitter. Is there something in his profile that I am overlooking that will prevent him from proving me right? Uh, well, his best position is batter's box. Um, and that's a there's an actual problem. I don't really quite know where you play him. He's not very good at third base. Um, and I don't think you can move him to second base. I don't think he has the footwork or the agility for it. You know, obviously, if he came up and he really hit, we would forgive some of his defensive limitations. The one thing I think he can do is hit a lot of hard line drives. I think that's ultimately what he is. I don't think he's going to have a lot of on-base ability. I don't think he's going to have a lot of power. He was never a top 100 prospect for me because this was kind of it. You're hoping it turns out to be a 60-hit tool and nothing else is more than probably average. And a lot of it is probably, it's probably a lot of 45s on the rest of the card. And there is no projection here. This is as good as it gets for him physically. And that's kind of been true for two or three years now. And I don't, I think that that's, you know, I think, I'm sure I wrote that two years ago and I think that's kind of been true. This is it. I think he could play, probably you could stick him in left field on a bad team. Maybe he could DH for somebody. I was really surprised the Rays traded for him because what use do they have for this guy? Right. That to me, it's like, okay, where is he going to find playing time now? I, I wanted him to go to a bad team. <laughs> I wanted him to go to one of the teams that I don't like to watch right now because that would be an actual path to here's 500 plate appearances. Let's see what you can do. And mm-hmm. here's a here's one defensive position that we want you to just play well enough. If you can do that, you can stick. Yep. That's what I was hoping to see. Um, so on the one hand, yeah, it feels good when the Rays trade for a player you believe in. On the other, I don't see exactly how they're going to utilize him, uh, at least in the short term with the current current build of that roster. Uh, part of the reason why I'm so intrigued by these guys I won't give up on is because we get these surprises. Kyle Wright. Kyle Wright is not a guy that I was clinging to previously, but he looks like a totally different pitcher than the guy we've seen in brief flashes in the big leagues prior to this season. Are you buying this version of Kyle Wright as a, a sustainable piece for the Atlanta rotation? Uh, yes, I would say I'm in on that. God, who did he pair up with? Was it Gore? Yeah, he, he, Gore's debut, Kyle Wright started on the other side. Yeah, that was pretty good. Can I have more of that? That was a good pitching matchup. That was a good game to watch. I, I enjoyed that very much. I would like more of those, please. <laughs> um, anytime you can get to, what was that, you know, sort of prospect who hasn't panned out, uh, plus prospect who looked like he might not be panning out, I guess. Um, and both guys looked pretty good in that first outing. Yeah, I'm I'm in on that. Yeah, Wright's been a little bit different this year. I went to actually went to the data just to make sure I was not making it up too, based on what it, has he made two starts. Two starts. I've seen two starts from him, making sure he hadn't had a third that I wasn't noticing. Um, he's throwing that hard. Sackcast calls it a hard curveball. Um, you know, he was a huge slider guy at Vanderbilt. It was a fastball slider. The concern was the fastball was a little ordinary. It had velocity, but not a whole lot else. But it was the slide. The slider was supposed to be the boost. It was a plus pitch for him in college. It looked like he would ride that right on up to the big leagues. And I think he did more or less up to about double A or so and started out a little trouble with the fastball and then really in the big leagues. Um, what got him, I'm looking just at last year, neither the fastball nor the slider was as effective as, as you'd hope. He got he would miss bats with the slider, but he'd also give up some damage. These are all pretty small samples, right? Because he'd been up and down a lot. 
it's interesting that he's throwing. I don't know if he calls it a curveball um, or if it's just a different shape to the slider, but it is so far a really effective pitch for him. Maybe that's the solution. Maybe that's what the thing that he's been looking for. Again, I'm kind of, I, I like the command. I liked the delivery quite a bit. I acknowledge that the fastball played down a little bit. I thought he could spin it and that that would be a, a pretty big difference maker for him. And interestingly enough, he's getting much better spin, just pure spin rate regardless of direction or axis, but just pure spin. He's getting quite a bit more on that. I'll, I'll call it a curveball um, than he did on the, and he ever really has on the slider. So maybe that's the solution. If so, I, I there's a story there. I'd like to know who, where did that come from? Not that he never had it, but he never used it. So what led to the switch? Cause okay, it's end of two, two starts and he's thrown, God, I'm looking. He's only thrown, he's thrown about 150 pitches so far this year. It's not a ton, but so far so good. Yeah, it's just one of those things. He looks so different in terms of, of pitch mix that you you can barely rely on what you have seen previously as giving you any sort of like grounding. Like we, you know, we talk about regression all the time. What's he going to regress to? Well, this is Kyle Wright 2.0, and Kyle Wright 2.0's baseline is still to be established. I think that that breaking ball is key for him. He's throwing it about a third of the time right now. And like you, I'd love to know more about how he got to that point because this looks really good. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device 
for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Can we... Put the Cody Bellinger is broken thoughts like back into the freezer for now. It seems like other than the K rate still being up like it was a year ago, we're at 279, 354, 535. He's got a couple of homers. He's walking a little bit. Like, is he is he fixed? Mostly fixed? I have no idea. <laughs> right. A week into the season, didn't he still look broken? Yeah, for the first most of the first series in Colorado, everyone said, "Oh no, in this is Colorado. an extension of spring training." He didn't get; he's not getting right in the easiest place to get right. Yes, right. I'm actually wondering: is there some? Has he had like a five game, or he's only played twelve games? I mean, yes. If that's his stat line for the year, the Dodgers are going to be ecstatic, right? This is amazing. Um, yeah, it really was just like what he went two for his first. I know this is riveting content for our listeners here. <laughs> two for his first fourteen say and then since then it's so weird he either has two hits or zero hits in every game every game this year you know all your hits to get lonely so you got to get literally this is his hits by game oh oh two oh two two oh two oh two oh two so i guess he's due for oh zero in his next game tonight that just seems to be how this is working that's so strange Mm -hmm. that's really strange like there's weird symmetry in his stat line in his game logs I'm sorry. I find this incredibly fascinating. Um, that is pretty weird and interesting. Like there has to be some explanation. Not that I think he's on this. Like I only hit on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But I wonder what is different about. I haven't. I haven't looked. Obviously, I've not looked at his game log before. Right now, I wonder what's different about who, what pitchers he's facing on those particular days. Have they? Have the Dodgers figured something out? Um, the big thing last year, right, was he's not healthy, right? He had this shoulder thing and it's really screwed him up and his swing is a mess as a result. That was the narrative. Is that, is it over? Is, can we say, Hey, look, whatever happens with him the rest of the season, the shoulder thing is off the table. He's obviously swinging it fine for the last week or so. Is that enough of a sample to say whatever else might be going on with him? He's still punching out a lot, but I, but he always will, right? He even did when he was good. But do we feel like we can stop using that as an explanation? Now it would just be an excuse and it's just back on him. Yeah, I, I think the hardest thing for me to really solve with, with Bellinger, I think health sapped the power last year. So that's that's easy to kind of put back into the profile and say, yeah, he's 25, 30 home runs easily. And, you know, if things go well. Maybe there's even more. The thing that really didn't make sense was from 2019 to 2020 when he had the K rate under 20 percent. Mm-hmm. that didn't seem like something he was ever going to do. And because he did it over more than 200 big league games, now finding his true talent strikeout rate is really difficult. Projections kind of push him down to the you know, lower 20% range, like 23%, if you kind of put all the projections together, is about where they're at. And last season, coming off the injury and early this season, he's more like a 28 29% K-rate player. Mm-hmm. What would you bet on going forward? What do you think is more likely his true talent from a strikeout rate perspective as you kind of project the rest of this season and maybe even into to next season? I don't think I need to go any further than that. The 23-year-old, the age 23 season is the extreme outlier, 
right? I mean, just if I'm trying to, if you were, if you fed this into a projection system, it's going to, it's not going to unweight 2019, but that is the only year in which he both cut his K rate substantially and produced really well on contact. The year after that, he didn't strike out very much, but he also didn't hit anywhere near as well. And then other years, he struck out a ton. 2019 just looks like a pretty extreme outlier here. My guess would be he strikes out a lot and is pretty productive. Like that he goes back to being a 25 to 30, you know, probably under 30%. If he gets, he's back over 30%, that's probably an indicator. Something's a bit off. He's a 25 to 27% K rate guy, but he's productive. Yeah. I think, and that's probably, that's kind of what I thought he'd be when I, when he was still a prospect. It's like, this guy's going to strike out a lot, but he's really going to hit. And he might cut down the strikeouts a little bit. You know, I, I don't think it will get to the point where he's striking out you know, a third of the time. Um, and, but that he'd get on base and he would hit for power and he could run and he'd play really good defense. And that's a hell of a player. Yeah. If I'd told Dodgers fans uh, a month ago, this is what Cody Bellinger's first 12 games of 2022 would look like. I think they would have happily accepted that said, yes, yep. we will take that in a heartbeat. Uh, one more topic to get to Keith. I know you, you wrote up some players who will be uh, selected in the 2022 draft coming up in July. I'm still not used to the draft being in July. I always want to say June. I want it to be the first week in June because why would the draft be during the all-star break? But uh, just a quick glance at the 2022 draft class and just a general question for you about Drew Jones, who many people know is the son of Andrew Jones, former Atlanta outfielder. Is Drew Jones just the classic easy call 1-1 sort of pick? Like Some years there's just not a consensus player at the top of the board, but is Drew Jones absolutely that kind of guy that all 30 teams, if you gave him the number one pick, he'd be their guy? If this were a hard slot system, like in other sports, he would be he would go first. I think it's a reasonably easy call. I don't think he's Bryce Harper, or, um, you know, Steven Strasburg, where it's like you take that guy or you've completely screwed up. But he's pretty clearly the top guy in the draft class. Everybody else I could mention for that, Mark Johnson and Jackson Holiday and Cam Collier and Elijah Green, I guess. They've all got more flaws and probably a little less ceiling. I mean, that's the other thing is Jones, if Jones hits... That's all world. I mean, that is everything. It's power, speed, defense, and center. I think he has a pretty good idea at the plate. It's always tough to tell with high school kids. But, you know, what we've seen from him over the summer, what I've seen in a couple of the spring, talking to scouts, no one seems overly concerned about that. There's some swing and miss there. Who doesn't? Just about everybody, especially if you hit for power. As an amateur player, you swing and miss a lot. So I think he's pretty clearly the top choice. The Orioles pick first. They, in the last couple of drafts, they have overdrafted a college position player, paid him under slot, used the savings to get more value with subsequent picks in the draft. I think that's a perfectly valid strategy. When Mike Elias, their current GM, was the scouting director for the Astros, he picked first three times. First time he had Carlos, he took Carlos Correa um, in a year where there were three or four candidates to go first. I think it was Correa, Byron Buxton, Mark Appel, Max Fried, and Correa took the best deal, and that's why they took him. And the following year, took Appel, who was the best player on the board that year, I think in most of our estimations. And the year after that, they took Brady Aiken, who, you know, unfortunately, due to a bizarre genetic, uh, you know, like malformation in his elbow, never made it, but he was the best player in that draft class. Two 
Two times out of three, they absolutely took the best player. And the other time, they took a guy who was arguably the best player and probably turned out to be the best player. But, you know, it wasn't entirely clear that year. So, you know, reading the Elias's history, I feel like he probably would take the best player unless they go to Jones and Jones is like, no, I want, you know, a million over slot. I could see at that point the Orioles saying, nope, next, and trying to do a deal with someone. And we don't know. We won't know until very close to the draft. Yeah, I just I thought that was kind of interesting just to get that out there now because I think there's a, a temptation for people as they start to wade into prospects to assume that a, a player is a consensus 1-1 any given year. The comp at the age for Drew Jones, like you had Andrew McCutcheon at, at a similar age as the the type of, of player that, that Jones currently is. And that's it's really exciting. If you're the Orioles or one of the other teams in the top of the, the draft yeah. order that could end up with him, I mean, that's a huge addition to your system yeah he doesn't have to get huge right there is projection he will fill out but he doesn't have to there's already power there that's the thing i find most interesting about him like for him in whatever system i think the goal would be you put on a little bit of weight obviously you want you want a guy to be strong to have you know extra honestly extra muscle to help him be durable through a long season he does not have to put on 25 pounds of muscle to be a good player i think the power is already pretty much there and it'll be about maintaining conditioning and working on hitting, the aspects of hitting, pitch recognition, plate discipline, all that stuff. If he ends up with a plus hit tool, he wins an MVP award. Like, I feel pretty good about that. We really don't know. And I do know some scouts who say, I'm not really sold on Jones's hit tool. I'm tending towards the more positive side. I think he's going to get there. I think he's going to end up with at least an average hit tool. That makes him the best player in the draft class. It's sort of a little bit of a... Don't overthink this, right? There's no college player in this draft class who's good enough to go one way. So now you're just looking at the high school class. Well, even if there were high school pitchers good enough, they no high school right-handers ever gone first. Three high school lefties have gone first. None of them worked out. Um, only one of them, I think, ever pitched in the big leagues, right? So, and, and as it turns out this year, the best high school pitcher is hurt. So we're just talking about high school position players, and it's those guys I just rattled off. Jones is clearly the best of those guys. It is not that he is worlds better than anybody else. It's more that he has the best combination of ceiling and I wouldn't call it floor so much, but limited flaws, limited current question marks. All those other guys have it. Tamar Johnson is 5'8", not a shortstop. And honestly, for a guy who I think can really freaking hit, he does, he has swing, swung and missed a bit. If you go look at the Look at stuff from the summer and the fall last year. He does. Um, it is not, yeah, you know, people are like, he, it's like a Tony Gwynn type of bat. He could get there, but it's not there right now. Elijah Green definitely swings and misses too much. Athleticism off the charts. Pure ceiling probably has more than Jones. But Green does swing and miss too much. Holiday, I just think, doesn't have the kind of electric athletic upside. He looks like he can really hit it. It's a hell of a swing. That's Matt Holiday's kid for folks who haven't followed along. Cam Collier is the one guy to me who stands out as somebody the Orioles could go with to try to do a deal. That's Lou Collier's son. So three of the five guys I just mentioned had dads played in the big leagues. Collier is a 17-year-old. He will still be 17 until November, currently playing at Chipola College, a junior college in Florida. So he's a the age of a high school junior playing a junior college. So basically everybody he faces is two to four years older than he is, and he's producing. And he's a third baseman who's going to stay there with a plus arm, and a good idea at the plate. He's got plate discipline. He's got some power. 
Looks like he can really hit. And models are going to freaking love that guy because of the age and the because the stats are valuable and because the level of competition, he's absolutely going to stand out. That's the one guy I could see somebody way up at the top going to and you know try to cut some kind of deal because he's in that cluster with these other guys. Could the Orioles do that? I have no idea for sure. Right? I haven't asked anybody. It's still too early to talk this team on this player. But I, knowing the Orioles' history, if they if there's any hesitation here with Jones, I feel like Collier's the guy they'd go to, given age and and track record that we actually have data on this guy. It's really interesting. If you if you did put Jones in that one one slot and you were making the choice at two, who would you want at two? Collier. You're Collier at two. Okay. Jones goes one, I take Collier. Anybody else goes one, I take Jones at two. To me, that's pretty clear. Like that much is clear to me that Collier um, that, that Jones is one and Collier is two. And I think you can take the next little group of names and kind of put them in the Yahtzee cup, right? And whichever one comes out is, <laughs> is they've all got good arguments. And you know, if you, if you're a big makeup and character intelligence, work ethic guy, then uh, Termar is, is, should be your guy. And I'm, I'm not actually that worried about him being five, eight. There's two five, eight guys, him and Jet Williams. You should go in the first round. They're, for, they're absolutely first round. They can hit, they hit the ball hard. There's going to be some power. And Johnson especially, he's hit good pitching, and everybody loves the kid as a kid, as a baseball player across the board. He's going to go somewhere way up there. These are all good players, right? We're talking about fine distinctions between very good prospects. But I feel pretty good about Jones 1 and Collier 2. I just wonder if uh, Termar Johnson hits a growth spurt and is 6'2", how much uh, does that change the conversation around him? Yeah, he could go one, right? This was Corbin Carroll a couple of years ago. Corbin mm-hmm. Carroll was 5'10". If, if Corbin Carroll had been 6'3", he would have gone 1-1. All right, and we're seeing what Corbin Carroll has done since being drafted that kind of tracks with that. Like, oh, wait, that that was the that was the ceiling. And because of size, people were kind of dismissing it in some ways. Strange, mm-hmm. but uh, happens kind of a lot. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you should get one. Theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you in the door for a dollar a month for the first six months. Check out the latest episode of The Keith Law Show. Professor John List was the guest. It was a really fascinating conversation about the behavioral economics. I, I think that was a, a topic that I really enjoyed, so definitely check that one out. And uh, be sure to leave us a rating review if you're enjoying this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You could leave reviews there as well. Thanks to the many of you who have done that. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.